Welcome to the Mom Docs Podcast. We are three chiropractors on a mission to empower moms and dads to intentionally choose health for their kids and families, to provide core principles to raise their families holistically, and to help parents take an active role in their family's health. Our goal is to provide families a philosophical approach to healthcare that steps away from the conventional and supports true health. Welcome back. This is Dr. Aaron, and I'm so excited about today's episode. We have a really important and special guest um, joining me today, Leah Wilson. And Leah and I are going to be talking about health freedom. And this is both your own health freedom, uh, you know, your freedom to make health choices for your kids. And we're living in a time where freedom is being put in jeopardy. And we're especially going to talk about what this means um, with vaccinations. And so it's so important um, that we hear the message that Leah Wilson is going to be sharing with us today. She is the co-founder and executive director of Stand for Health Freedom um, with us today. And she is helping families all across the country um, stand up for, for this right. And, you know, with COVID hitting this year, we've got mandates, we've got masks, politics are thrown in there. We've got flu season, which maybe you can touch on this too, Leah, at some point um, seems to be almost non-existent now. Um, but everything is very polarized. And, you know, I think people are kind of drawing a line in the sand, um, which really came with COVID. And regardless of, you know, individual opinions and views, we just want to bring some important points that everyone should be considering as we navigate this critical time. So Leah, I just want to give you kind of a formal introduction. You are a health freedom attorney. As I said, you're a, a, the executive director and co-founder for Stand for Health Freedom, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to protecting the people's interests in a, in a world where the industry and government are really holding hands and lots of conflicts of interest. Um, you graduated from the St. Louis University School of Law you hold dual bachelor's degrees in political science and Spanish from Indiana University. Super impressed by that. Um, in addition to your advocacy work with Stand for Health Freedom, um, you're also the owner and former operations director of Max Living Indy. So this is one of the largest natural health centers in the Midwest, and I would even argue in the world. Um, you're also an educator on holistic health and a sought-after speaker on issues from religious freedom to greening your home. Um, you're just a wealth of knowledge, and I'm really excited that you're on the show with me, Leah. Thank you. It's great to be here with you today, Dr. Aaron. And um, talking to moms is one of the best things we can do, right? So Absolutely. Very cool. So, Leah, why don't you jump in? Why don't you just kind of share your heart? Why did you get into this? Yes. So it was quite the unfolding and unraveling of um, this passion project now is really where I am today is giving my life, time and resources to the passion project that Stand for Health Freedom is. I was practicing private defense litigation on bet the company cases, huge cases um, while I was in private practice of law. And left that to focus on our family's natural health center, because that's really where our mission was, was on helping our community with learning to live the chiropractic lifestyle, the natural lifestyle that gives people freedom. And while we were doing that, my husband and I 
running the health center together. We were also fostering because that was why I originally went to law school because of my passion for reform in foster care, because there were two issues in particular that really drove me to advocacy for foster kiddos and to see reform in the system, which they are subjected to. And that first issue is that kids age out of foster care without a permanent home. So you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you have those foundational needs that have to be present before they can ever, you know, self-actualize or achieve things in life. And aging out isn't an option if we want better for our kids than addiction, prostitution, joblessness, homelessness, crime rates, et cetera. So that was the first issue. And the second issue was the over-medication of the foster kids. We have over um, 250,000 kids in America ages two and under on psychotropic drugs. And a huge portion of those are our foster children. And, you know, these kiddos ages two and under, you know why they can't sleep at night? Because they don't feel safe. So medicating them is not addressing their true need. And through my research and advocacy with foster kids, we eventually became foster parents. And until the beginning of 2018, when we were told that our foster license renewal was being denied because we don't fully vaccinate our biological sons. And that was frustrating to me. It felt like just as much as a death as the multiple miscarriages I had been through. And uh, just we had put our heart and soul into foster care and to be told that my children were a danger, a threat to the welfare of the foster kids was it hit hard. And asking for proof that my children were a danger, which I knew they wouldn't be able to find proof because I've done my research and I understand what's going on. But for proof that this was justified, that there was science behind the policy change and come to find out, you know, there wasn't a policy change. There was no new law written. There was no new regulation passed. It was simply that the bureaucracy was interpreting the regulations differently now to include unvaccinated members of a foster home as a threat to the welfare of a foster child, which if you trace it back, it normally always comes back to money. And this was being pushed by the federal guidelines that if our state institutions for children still want to receive federal funding, that they need to adopt recommendations that are set forth by the federal powers that be, by these regulatory agencies that hold hands with the pharmaceutical industry. So that's what pushed me into full-time advocacy. I was, I said, God, this is too big to fight and too big to let go. So where do we go from here? And before I knew it, I was reporting on the um, national measles outbreak and a friend, one of my co-founders, Sayer G, who runs greenmedinfo.com and started greenmedinfo.com. We became super frustrated because we could get 10,000 shares on a measles report, but yet we knew that those numbers were not being translated to true advocacy to show our strength of what the people want, what we want to see as it relates to personal responsibility for our health without government interference Mm -hmm. needs to be, the strength of that needs to be shown with our sheer numbers. 
And in order to show those numbers, we needed to put something in place that was a credible, integrous way to capture the voice of the people and to stand together. And 2020 has shown us in such a huge way that standing together is the only way that we will secure our freedoms. And it's, we could have never planned to launch Stand for Health Freedom, just what, I mean, I don't even know I'm bad with timelines, but months, not even a whole year before um, 2020 hit. Well, I guess it would have been, I won't even try to figure it out, but you know, just months, if not a little over a year before 2020 um, is when we launched and started really supporting state efforts in a big way to show that moms care about being the ones that are entrusted with health decisions for their children and for themselves as we're seeing a whole new wave of the pressure to make specific health decisions, even in the adult population now, which we knew was coming down the pipeline when um, the World Health Organization put out their 10-year strategic plan. The last two strategic plans by the World Health Organization have included adult vaccine mandates, have included that we need the entire population to be on some sort of regular vaccine schedule. And not everyone chooses a pharmaceutical lifestyle. So what does that mean for those of us who do not choose a pharmaceutical lifestyle or basis foundation for wellness? In your experience doing this, um, I mean, I think what COVID has shown us really is where the political lines are drawn in terms of states and the different policies that, you know, depending on which state you're in and what you're up against um, really depends on who's in power there. And what we've noticed living in Idaho is this year, really since probably May, um, we, our community has boomed. We've, we call them medical refugees because we have seen so many people moving in because they want to get away from what is, if it's California or some of these Washington, some of these states where, you know, we've seen kind of everybody's true colors coming out with COVID um, and really people paying attention. Okay. You know, I don't necessarily want my kids growing up in this environment or, I don't want to be subjected to um, these types of mandates that are going to require me to, you know, have a vaccination or something along those lines. You know, what what has been your experience in dealing with, I mean, you're, you're helping multiple, you know, you're really helping the entire country, but which states have you found the biggest struggles in when it comes to advocating for health freedom? It's a good question. And what it really comes down to, what I hear you saying is, COVID is a global issue, right? I mean, it's undeniable. And I think that's what cripples a lot of people from from standing up and feeling like what they model within their own family and in their own communities makes a difference is because we are looking at, we are looking right in the eyes at a global issue. But what we know about activism and advocacy and breakthroughs in any society is that it's the local action that creates that reverberation, that change. And we won't ever be able to take that away, you know? So anytime an individual feels powerless, it's a lie. Individuals are never powerless. And we always have the power to A, stand up and find freedom within ourselves from sources outside of what a man can give us, but B, to unite with our communities, which is powerful. And I love that you used 
the term medical refugee. I haven't heard that. And I imagine that there are several cities across the U.S. that are sensing that and seeing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's been people fleeing to Idaho, to Texas, to Oklahoma, to South Dakota because of the pressure that they are feeling in a lot of the coastal states, mostly New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and um, then Oregon, Washington, California. Yeah, There's a lot of pressure coming in on those states. And I was talking to a superintendent over in Oregon a couple weeks ago, and he was saying, we might not be able to save our entire country. However, we really can make a difference in our states and in our communities, which is what I know to be true as an attorney and an advocate also is that our activism needs to be focused on a local level. Anything really outside of the state level is a bit distracting. Um, State level is important. State laws affect our health freedom in a huge way. And so is local. What is what's going on at your school board? What's going on in your county council, your county commissioners? Do you even know what's on the agenda for those meetings? And what are they discussing, discussing that affects your lives? So mm-hmm. it it's good to be aware. And I know that there's even some sanctuary cities popping up within those states, those states that are um, where people are feeling such oppressing that they're willing to uproot generations of family in those states and move right. to, move outside of them. Um, it's undeniable that it's a real effect on how we educate our children and how we make a living. And yeah. Um, so yes, remembering that the focus needs to be at the state level and the local level and not to be disoriented by the global chaos or the overwhelm of what's happening in our nation's capital. Okay. And, you know, it can be this, it does seem overwhelming. I think for a lot of people, they think, and these are the people that I've talked to that have come to our state, come to our city uh, because of, you know, the vaccine mandates and, you know, the oppression that's happening in schools, um, but really them feeling helpless. And what I'm hearing you say is you aren't helpless, um, but you need to get involved and your, your voice needs to be heard. And so what what is the best way for, you know, say it's a stay at home mom that really feels like her voice is not being heard. And it just seems like too massive of a battle to stay in, to stay where she's at um, and fight, you know, for, for freedom. What would you say to that person? How can she get involved? Yeah. So I had the privilege of interviewing a Holocaust survivor and human rights champion back in June. I, um, I literally woke up one morning and thought Vera Sharab has moved mountains for biomedical research ethics. And she saw, she's seeing history repeat itself and we have to capture her story Mm. and um, sitting and talking to Vera and hearing what she has to say about our innate wisdom, our intuition as mothers being under full force attack brings us back to the basics of, are we in tune with our own instincts and are we ignoring those instincts or giving them up because of outside pressures, because of whether it's fear or whether it's the uh, pressure to comply with something you don't agree with and the importance of not relinquishing our own intuition, our own instincts, our own deeply held religious beliefs is so important today because that's what we have to pass on to our future generations. And there's really a line in the sand right now. Mm 
with whether we lay down or stand up. And standing together is extremely important to make a difference. Standing up is the first step, right? But then finding your people and standing together. And stand for health freedom, we have some of the best advocates. We've grown the voting block to over a couple hundred thousand just in the wow. short time that we've been around. And our goal this year is to multiply that. And the way that we do that is through our partnerships on the ground. You know, these moms who see an issue come across, they've joined Stand for Health Freedom and they see an issue come across in their state or nationally, and they click to take an action. So they know that they've taken that first step to have a voice, to be together with us as a voting block. Because in New Jersey, where we saw effective campaigns happen, you know, that public pressure was really felt by the state legislature and this huge bill fell. And it's those 80,000 emails over four days. If that one mom wouldn't have clicked to take action and share with her homeschool group or share with her PTA group, then that doesn't happen. This is truly grassroots advocacy. And so taking that one courageous action to click and send an email, whether you edit it or you don't edit it, customize it to to your own story, that's neither here nor there at the end of the day when we can show our sheer numbers. And then not only that, it's once you do take that first action and then you share it with others and we have this snowball effect that hopefully there's a way for you to get plugged in on the ground with the groups that are supporting those campaigns to, even if it's not volunteering, but it's just being connected because community is so important as we, uh, in isolation, we feel we can be convinced that we're crazy, you know, when we're in isolation and that we should have right. been instincts. But when you're tied to other individuals that are like-minded and share values of health and bodily sovereignty and personal responsibility and situating our kids to bust out of these uh, American standards, then that's where we find true strength is in community and, and standing together through our sheer numbers. So it's definitely getting plugged in, joining Stand for Health Freedom, taking action on those alerts and sharing them. Because if each and every one of us takes action and we share with 10 people and that snowball effect occurs before we know it, we're going to 10x this advocacy base and make it undeniable that the people still do have a voice and we will not let the pharmaceutical industry's agenda go unopposed as it relates to the care of ourselves and of our children. That's amazing. So walking our listeners through what it looks like to, you know, take advantage of the amazing resources that Stand for Health Freedom offers. When you get plugged in with Stand for Health Freedom, um, you're going to quickly realize that there is an ability for you to send communication to your state officials, the legislature, so that we can actually impact policy. And I think for me, it gets very overwhelming when I think about how to word things and what do I say um, if I'm sending a message, um, you know, to a political official, you know, to get my my voice heard and my point across effectively and efficiently. And you guys have really taken the guesswork out of all of that. So just giving, you know, some of our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with how that works, can you just walk us through what that looks like? Yes. Standforhealthfreedom.com. So it's all spelled out, standforhealthfreedom.com. And you go there and today uh, there should be a pop-up, you know, of one of our most recent campaigns, you would see a pop-up for the COVID vaccine must be voluntary, right? And so if you go in there and you read the hour stand about 
what is the issue at hand that we're seeing and what are some of the solutions and what can we do about it right now? And then you can click and say, yes, I want to make sure that the people in leadership understand this issue. So when you click to act, you would put your full information in. And the reason being is because the elected officials, your representatives want to know that they are hearing from the people that have the ability to elect them. Otherwise, the campaigns don't have strength um, if you're not a voter. They want to know, can this person vote for me? How mad are they? And how many people are standing with them? You know, those are the kind of the questions they ask when they want to know whether or not they should really perk up and listen. So you click to act and there'll be a pre-populated message that's customizable on that issue going to the right person that represents you that can control the issues we're talking about. Because that's another big thing is, you know, the safety of a vaccine isn't directly under the influence of a state legislator, that's a federal legislator. So we would wanna talk to CDC oversight and guidance about federal, you know, to our federal representatives, but on the state level, it's it's more about mandates and what we what rights we still do and do not have. Okay. And so you'll see that customizable message there. And if you wanna customize it, great. If you don't, great. You um, click to send that and then you can share it with other people. Um, we currently have strong relationships with 12 states. I have a conversation this week with the 13th state. And, you know, our goal is state leaders that want our help to help show the sheer numbers and get quality campaigning and public pressure behind these issues. Our goal is to just continue adding more and more individual states to stand for health freedoms partnership. Um, and other than that, we do have national campaigns that have erupted because the issues have become so similar across the U.S. with the CDC being the one that's setting the stage. I mean, they've been setting the stage for four decades now yeah. and getting horrible results. However, now under national emergency, global emergency, the CDC is having even more fingers in what happens with our local public health departments, et cetera. So those campaigns have been able to give a voice to key issues that we see um, for the 2021 legislative session as we enter new and interesting times with pretty amazing opportunities to educate people who weren't listening on these issues before. That's awesome. It's, it's really empowering to know that, you know, your organization is really fighting on behalf of our freedom. Um, I, I think, yeah, obviously this year has really woken a lot of people up. Um, but, you know, this this has really been a fight for a long time, you know, mm -hmm. well before COVID. So let's, let's walk through, um, let's talk a little bit about informed consent. Um, you know, for we've got a lot of new parents that are, you know, following us and listening to our podcast, um, very intrigued by, you know, what it looks like to take their child to a pediatrician and what does that conversation look like when the topic of vaccines are brought up. So can you walk us through um, the importance of informed consent? Yes. So making a decision based on informed consent is very different than making a decision based on a medical mandate. Let's call it what it is. So all 50 states have vaccine mandates and most of those states will honor exemptions if you feel that it is not best based on religious belief, medical needs, and in some states, philosophical reasons, they'll honor exemptions to that. 
So it's, are we making decisions based on a mandate or informed consent? And informed consent is when a decision is made by a competent person. So is that person competent to make the decision, the parent, not the child, right? And are they adequately informed and not coerced? So do they know what are the risks of doing nothing? What are the benefits of doing something and with this particular intervention? And what are my other options? So do you have full information? And are you not being coerced in one direction or another? So those are the three key things, competence, adequate information, and free choice that it's voluntary. Recognizing the inception of informed consent of why informed consent even became a term is extremely eye-opening because some of you might know that it was birthed out of post-World War II trials that we promised the world that never again would we tolerate such wartime atrocities, such as medical, involuntary medical experimentation mm. on disabled, elderly. Um, we said, no, never again. We cannot experiment on patients, on the public without their willing participation. And that's how informed consent was birthed. Wow. But you look, you look at the CDC website today and on the vaccine portion of that website, it says that the CDC federal guidance does not require informed consent for vaccination decisions, that that will be left up to the state and local authorities to implement informed consent if it's a requirement in those locales. And so you have to ask yourself, okay, so why are vaccines, you know, th these pharmaceutical products, why are they exempted from informed consent? And what informed consent could I even get if I asked for it? Um, it's important to know why we're being asked to do what we're being asked to do. Why are we being asked to give my two hour old baby a hepatitis B vaccine? What is the benefit to my baby? What is the risk if I don't do this? You know, uh, making those decisions is extremely important because we are the only ones responsible for the outcome. We will be the only ones holding the cards, right? If there is any emotional, physical damage, if there's financial responsibility that follows this intervention, that the parents, the mom, the individual are the only ones responsible at the end of the day. Even the pharmaceutical companies do not have liability for vaccine injury or damage outside of fraud, you know, so as it relates mm -hmm. to injury and death, there's, there isn't liability outside of the individual. There is mm -hmm. a special court that you can go to, to, to for grievance and to receive a compensation that's capped at $250,000. If you get your case heard, if they accept your case, they accept, you know, a fraction of the cases that are filed and um, based on tabled injuries and pre-formatted things, not based on discovery and um, trials, not based on court trials. So it's important to know that I'm responsible. I'm the only one holding the cards at the end of the day. And so I make educated health decisions based on my own understanding of my own health goals and my view of my body instead of, to put quite frankly, based on the PR campaigns being run by the pharmaceutical industry and pushed by the government. Right. Yeah, that's huge. I think um, 
there's just this narrative that we've, you know, as a, as a culture and now globally, um, that vaccines are safe and effective. And really we've seen a lot of bullying from, you know, at the local level from pediatricians, we've seen people being booted from pediatric practices if they um, decide not to vaccinate. And the conversations that I've had with parents that this has happened to, really it was like, don't question this. There was not a, a decent informed consent conversation. It was more, um, this is why you know it's bad if you don't. And if you choose not to, you can't be a patient here anymore. So is that really informed consent? And that type of coercion of I will discontinue your care as a patient is that in and of itself, you have to start asking questions about your trust relationship with your provider. I'm not saying they're not great people, sure. but there might not be a trust relationship as it relates to what's best for your body. Population-based medicine is not about the individual. Population-based medicine is about public policy goals that have a one size fits all solution to people who are very different. And, um, you know, there's really the crux of this is that for profit products should find their rightful place in society, that a medical intervention, a pharmaceutical product, the people should be trusted to weigh the risks and the benefits of participating or not participating. And if we let the people choose, then the product will find their rightful place in society. If a mom looks at what is what are the risks of my child getting measles and what happens if they do get measles? And then as opposed to what are the risks for my child if they receive 26 adjuvanted vaccinations before age one? And it's it's a it's an important decision. It's one of the, the most important decisions that we will make for our children as it relates to their immune system. We have an immune system that we walk through life with, and you can speak to that more than I can. But it's about our response to the outside world. And when we start manipulating that immune system with other products, then that just needs to be an intentional decision. It needs to be a decision that we have made intentionally and not based out of fear or shame, because a lot of times what you hear is well, okay, maybe measles isn't risky now, but that's because the vaccine, that's why the measles isn't risky. Well, how do we know that? What experience has informed you of that? Because what we do know is that there are measles outbreaks in fully vaccinated populations. There are mumps outbreaks in fully vaccinated populations. There's so much vaccine failure that's not talked about, whether it's waning immunity? Mm -hmm. Does the person ever develop antibodies based on the vaccine? And if they do, how long does it last? Secondary vaccine failure, where they don't ever develop it even after a booster. There's the mute mutations of viruses, which mutant virus, my friends, is a term that's meant to scare you. So you're hearing the word mutant virus to picture some Frankenstein COVID strain, right. when in all reality, viruses mutate. They're living organisms, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Aaron, that will respond to their environment and adapt and change. And so we're not surprised. Yes, viruses mutate. Which strains are covered under the vaccination? How do I know the vaccine is a solution? I'm not going to make decisions based off of fear and bullying that I'll be responsible for the reemergence of an infectious disease in society if I don't use a purported solution, because I need to know that it's the solution to begin with.
Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Right. And um, and that might sound bold, but you know, we need boldness this day and age if we're not just going to let a for-profit industry that has felony records. I mean, Pfizer, one of the manufacturers of the first coronavirus vaccine since I think since the year 2000, they've paid over $4.7 billion in misconduct fines. And to say that I'm supposed to not question what's going into my body or the assurances of safety and efficacy and necessity um, for a virus that affects those who are 80 and older and 60 and older some, Hmm. you know? Um, So looking at that and realizing the poster child of vaccination polio really um, does that hold water when Geyer's study that was commissioned by the HHS themselves um, showed us the reduction in infectious disease transmission and in infectious disease deaths at the latter part of the 1900s, mid 1900s, had almost nothing to do with vaccine policies. It was happening that, the day before. That yes, right? that it was clean water, refrigeration, you know, the separation of our sewage from our drinking water that goes back to clean water, hygiene practices, that these filth diseases and these oral fecal route diseases plummeted when society became educated on how to build stronger immune systems through cleaner environments. And that doesn't mean sanitized environments. They weren't using sanitizers. Mm -hmm. They were simply using hygiene practices and refrigeration and good food practices, et cetera. So it's interesting that, you know, that the industrialization of the world, we had some things to learn when we started using the same sewage lines and started mass producing foods. And we had some learning lessons and how that affected infectious, affected infectious disease transmission was big. And so what are we going to see now with um, the vaccine coming out and the rates of COVID? Will it be the next polio story of giving the credit to a product and lest we look at what we're observing today? Yeah. And that's, that's something that I'm actively watching. Um, and it's very frustrating when, you know, we know how powerful the body is and we're looking at a case demic. And I think people separating those numbers and understanding cases does not necessarily equal infections. <laughs> I think that's, that's something that's really important for people to understand. And because we're looking at Um, just this huge narrative that the vaccine is going to be the savior of, you know, this pandemic. Um, Something that I would love for you to touch on, Leah, is what do we know about the COVID vaccine in terms of its effectiveness, safety? You know, what do we know? Because this has been developed just astronomically faster than any other vaccine. Can you speak to that? Yes. So I think, you know, The one thing that I know through and through that is irrefutable is that this needs to be a personal decision, right? That it has to be voluntary. And we know that there are public health authorities from the top, Dr. Anthony Fauci himself, um, saying that this will be something that is going to have to be mandated because there's not enough public interest or public uptake in the intervention. And so first thing we know is that it needs to be voluntary. And I, if you go on the website, 
there's, I wrote a piece on the top five reasons why it must be voluntary things to think about before making the decision. And I've been telling people one of the most compassionate conversations you can have today is to bring up, are you going to get the COVID-19 vaccine when it's your turn? Hmm. You know, what's going to be your response? Because you think, well, that's a personal decision. You shouldn't bring that up. Well, how many people are giving people permission to think about what they want their decision to be? You know, you see, um, these products that are meant to affect and act on your immune system can have lasting effects and it needs to be something that a risk or benefit that you are intentionally pursuing. So the first thing that we do know is that it's highly experimental and MRNA technologies have never been used before on the population and Moderna itself had never produced um, a product for public consumption like this. So it's experimental and it will stay experimental because it was licensed under emergency use. Well, not licensed. I shouldn't even use that word. It was given authorization to be distributed to the public under emergency use, unlicensed. Mm -hmm. And the ethical considerations that have been talked about by these companies and by the boards of the FDA are when can we move our control group into the vaccinated group because they see it as unethical to withhold the product. So that is the posture from the medical industry is that if we have a product that we believe is helpful, then it's unethical to withhold it. Um, so at six months is when I've heard both Moderna and Pfizer say that everyone in their control group will be offered to cross over to the vaccinated group. And what that means for the product is that the short and long-term effects are going to be, you know, largely unaccounted for if the entire control group moves over. And one of the main concerns with these products was with the mRNA and the proteins that are used to teach the cell how to respond to the virus is fertility and fertility effects. Can we measure those in six months? Wow. Do we know if we have a population of 30 year olds that are now infertile, if everyone, how, who do we compare them to if everyone is offered the vaccine and there's no control group, wow. you know, so it's the effects on fertility, the effects on cancer, the effect, the mutagenic effects, which means DNA changing and morphing and whatever effects that has within your body long-term will largely go unknown. And there's also the same risk with childhood vaccinations where no one is going to guarantee your safety exists with these COVID vaccines also because of the PrEP Act, which says, because we're in a time of emergency, we have invoked this act that says no one is responsible for anything that happens with these products that are designed to address the crisis. So even if your employer encourages you to get it, there's there's an argument that under the PrEP Act, the employer has zero liability in pressuring you to get this vaccination. Hmm. Um, that's not super clear law. However, there is an argument for that and definitely no liability on the side of the manufacturer, on the side of the doctor or hospital system or insurance payer. So that's another consideration. The third thing to consider is that we know that the studies were not designed to detect disease prevention, to de detect the um, the transmission, you know, so yeah, wow. if the studies by these companies are designed to look at symptom reduction, 
then why are we selling as a solution to stop transmission of a disease? Wow. So if you're taking a risk just to lower your symptoms of a virus, what were your risks with the symptoms of the virus to begin with? So we know that for sure that it has not been studied to reduce transmission, but to reduce symptoms. And we also know anytime we have a, um, a product that is one size fits all, that every patient is designed and suited for this singular solution, we have to start asking questions because for the greater good, does that notion even hold water? If you really examine it, and I would love to do a paper on this individually, but um, when is a point in time where you can say sacrificing the individual medically was for the greater good because the, the whole is made up of a bunch of individuals. And so if we start damaging the individuals that are making up our community, what does that do? It actually drains resources and hurts our strengths and hurts our human capital hmm. instead of improving it. You can't take a hole and start picking off some of the um, people and say that is for the benefit, especially when you haven't shown that the solution is to prevent transmission or um, prevent death, but rather hmm. to reduce symptoms. And then Which also the, there's a huge percentage of our population that already is going to have very few to no symptoms if they get the actual virus. So right. it's, just, it's just maddening. It's like, but you weren't going to get, you weren't going to have a huge reaction to the virus anyway, because you're a healthy adult. And these are the people that I'm seeing posting with selfies. These are people that in, in my, you know, circle, um, I've seen people that I'm like, you, you are fit, you know, you, take vitamins, you eat right. Um, and, you know, these are the people that it would have been, you know, a non-event probably for. And so that's what's frustrating is I think they're getting it because they think they're they're going to somehow now not transmit it to, you know, the populations that are really at risk. And I feel like that's such a false sense of security people aren't thinking about. Right. And we know that, I mean, you teach your patients this and your moms that um, it's our susceptibility to being a transmitter is really about our own health. Yes. You know, we forget that we have the key already and that is ourselves being healthy as a gift to our community and people can't tell us differently. You know, people can't rock your boat when it comes to you being resolute and firm in your core convictions that I'm not, I'm not sick and I'm not a threat to my community and just being firm in that because even according to the CDC's own data, most people have more than a 97% chance of surviving COVID without permanent ramifications. Wow. You know, so it's with that survivability rate, and especially in populations younger than 70, it's above 99.5%. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's important that we know what direction we're stepping in, where we're leading our future generations, how we're teaching our future generations to even think about health and their neighbors, not in a way that says we should make health decisions based out of shame or pressure or um, when we see the, the people who are running these campaigns to encourage you to make these health decisions, what are their success rates? Hmm. Don't we choose our experts based on success rate? Isn't that how we should do that? Yes. And if you look at the CDC's data for our population, they don't have a great success rate. They have a pretty failing success rate as it relates to uh, even infant mortality. We lead in the highest death rates, you know, highest infant mortality in the industrialized world. 
were one of the worst. And then you look at even um, maternal mortality rates. Mm -hmm. We have some of the worst rates for that in the industrialized world. Like, what are we doing? Like, what guidance are we following? That's one size fits all. And then we get into our pediatric population where obesity is one in five, emotional, mental, or psychological disorders are one in five. One in seven of our children are on a psychotropic drug one in 13 suffering with asthma, one in seven suffering with some sort of allergic disorder. And it's, it's unacceptable, you know, chronic suffering, lifelong suffering cannot be accepted as the norm for our future generations, for our own children. And making a difference in that world is simply modeling. It's being bold enough to stick to your core convictions, to stand up for what you believe in, to make the decisions that you see best and modeling that and giving the next mom the permission to ask those same good questions and to choose a different way for her family if that's what she sees best. That's really good. Well, Leah, I think you are seriously a gift to um, to the world because I think it's eye-opening um, to hear these things, but then to feel empowered that really we there is something we can do to, in effect, change policy, and you know, stand for health freedom is doing so much to advocate. Um, and I'm I'm really really thankful for you joining us today and for everything that you're doing um, to fight for our freedom. Yes, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Um, it's humbling, and you know, it's it's a it's a passion project. Like I said, we're here and empowering others to stand because we believe that that's what the world needs right now, that true care does not weaponize fear. It doesn't promote false solutions or sell false solutions. And um, our success in securing basic human rights will depend on gathering our numbers in a meaningful way. And that's why we are here at Team for Health Freedom is to show our sheer numbers and empower you to stand together with your communities. So I would generally say um, to find us on Facebook or Instagram or all of that, and you can totally do those things. Stand for Health Freedom is pretty easy, but please, please, you know, join and sign up with your email address, with your address. We can keep you informed on issues in your area, yes. with, you know, where censorship isn't as big of a deal with an email list that we can still contact you at from StandForHealthFreedom.com. Yes, I will echo that. That is so, that's such a huge piece of this is to make sure that you're subscribed. Um, and the emails that I've gotten have been super helpful um, where you know, I feel like I can make a difference and you know, you've already done all, all the grunt work and all I really have to do is, is push send. So I'm really, really thankful for that um, as a mom and also as you know, a healthcare professional um, that I can use this as a resource. So Thank you, Leah. And we look forward to having you again. We're definitely going to have you back on the show. I appreciate it. Talk soon. Thanks for joining us today on the Mom Docs podcast. If you enjoyed listening to the show, the greatest compliment you can give is to share this with others and leave us a review on iTunes. By subscribing to our podcast, you'll never miss an episode. We'll see you next time.